Hello all and welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown, your weekly look at the IT News of the Week. I'm your host, Rich Straffolino. I'm the fatalistic editor here at Gestalt IT. Joining me from across this great nation of ours, through the magic of cyberspace, is the one, the only, Tom Hollingsworth. Tom, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on in this 18th week of January, Rich. It, uh, it will never end. Uh, we'll be in January for the rest of our lives. And let's get it started uh, with, a, I think, it's a really interesting announcement coming out of Canonical. Not a lot of people maybe think about them in an enterprise sense, but they announced Anbox Cloud for enterprises, which can distribute Android apps using the cloud in a container environment. I believe it uses LXD, which would make sense because they're, you know, Linux. Uh, businesses using the service will have secure apps that are independent of devices. Canonical says this is ideal for cloud gaming enterprise workplace applications, software testing, and mobile device virtualization. Canonical is partnering with Packet to offer Anbox on-prem and on the edge, which I think is a really interesting use case. And they're using Ampere and Intel as hardware partners, so kind of covering the x86 and ARM space there. On-demand containerized Android apps. So crazy it just might work, Tom. Yeah, if your name is Citrix. <laughs> I mean, that's basically what they've done is they've replicated the Citrix model from how many years ago? Only it's hot with containers and Android. Also, Canonical, I'm sorry to say, I don't care how innovative you are. This will still not make 2020 the year of VDI. (laughs) This does seem weirdly like an idea that they started developing when they were trying to do more mobile focused OS stuff. And they're just like. I guess we could spin this out and we'll just do like Mm -hmm. enterprise stuff instead of delivering apps this way. Like I I could see this being fairly compelling. This almost reminds me of um, what was the company? I think it was called Robin. They did a phone, which was basically like all their Android apps were based in the cloud and stuff like that. It seemed like it was way Mm -hmm. less sophisticated than this. Obviously this has an enterprise focus and Hey, cloud gaming's hot. Let's throw that out there too. Um, But uh, yeah, um, an interesting move by canonical. Why not? All right, Tom, in uh, pun headline news, cloud hosting provider DigitalOcean announced restructuring with the register reporting about 10% of its staff laid off. Co-founder Moisey Uretsky stated recent executive shuffling as creating competing visions within the company, something that I guess happens when you have two CEOs in 18 months. He also said the company isn't concerned about profitability for its budget hosting offerings, which uh, I believe start still at around $5 a month for, you know, like a single core server, uh, but admitted that the company's last profit uh, profitable year was 2017 and that was the only time that the company has rung in a profit uh is this a sign that the competing with aws as a smaller company can't be profitable tom or just this company's steadying course in this in this case it's a little bit of both as it turns out when you have these grand visions and they don't agree with the other grand <laughs> visions that other people have somebody's got to go and so I, I say this sometimes, you know, it's it's the the new head of the of uh, the pride coming in to kill all the cubs uh, kind of a thing there. But, yeah, you're absolutely right. You are I mean, you're a distant 87th in this market, which means you're still ahead of Google Cloud. But you <laughs> you're basically kind of you're you're fighting for scraps. I mean, the thing with DigitalOcean is, is like most people that use it, they, they host the WordPress blogs on there or they host like a small storefront for mom and pop, you know. I, I'm not looking to do this if I'm CNN. DigitalOcean is not my stop. So they they are going to have to learn that they have two options. You can gamble it all and play in a very big market, or you can be comfortable with what you've got. 
And I think that the gamble at all in the bigger market people are the ones that are now looking for um, a very slow boat to their next job. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think DigitalOcean gets a lot of goodwill because, you know, they do offer those those like crazy low, you know, um, Uncle Larry's discount uh, cloud hosting servers that you can just spin up in an instance. In a weird way, I think... Uh, you know, there was some speculation that this was a setup for them to eventually get acquired. Um, uh, Retsky kind of uh, was on Hacker News just talking in a comment thread, which was kind of weird, um, but saying that that wasn't the case, that they, you know, they were planning on remaining independent, stuff like that. I do have to wonder, though, you know, Bitnami was recently acquired by VMware, I believe. Um, it, it does seem maybe a little bit like I, like I could see another company use buying a someone like a DigitalOcean and using that, hey, super crazy low discount pricing, get you in. And then, oh, by the way, like Amazon does with LightSail, all of a sudden you're using other services and it's no longer $5 a month. Maybe, but one, DigitalOcean would have to be profitable to make that make sense. And two, uh, that works when you own the rest of the stack. And I yeah. don't think anybody does that for DigitalOcean right now. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and essentially, I mean, I'm sure they're all running off of either Azure or AWS, right? On the back end anyway. So they, mm -hmm. you know, if, if someone were to buy them, they're just essentially buying into <laughs> handing more money to Amazon. So. Uh, speaking of Google Cloud, though, uh, major news here, Tom. Google announced it is now supporting hosting for AS400 workloads on Google Cloud. Last fall, Google did a soft launch by providing access to IBM Power System servers running AIX. The offering now will let customers uh, rent time on IBM Power and iSystems. Uh, this also goes along. Uh, Microsoft also announced uh, uh, that they were doing AS400 last fall as well. So kind of Google, uh, I guess, offering a, a full complement and catching up in that regard. Legacy apps will get uh, private API access to other Google Cloud resources. No surprise there. Power server partitions will get their own private IP addresses as well. Uh, pretty much table stakes, I guess, for a cloud offering. But it's AS400, so I guess we have to state that. So, Tom, are we going to see a rash of DB2 lift and shifts to GCP? You know, if you hurry now, you can probably intercept the container truck carrying all the cash leaving Armonk, New York, headed to Microsoft and Google <laughs> over this, because what the hell? Seriously, AS400 workloads? I mean, when you think about it, it makes all the sense in the world. Those things were virtualized to start with, para-virtualized on, on hardware. Um, the irony is, of course, you know, this is the one thing Amazon can't pick up from your location and move directly into the cloud. I feel like Google needs to give this some kind of catchy name like Avalanche, because this is, you know, like a big thing coming and we all know it's going to be a disaster no matter what happens. Um, this, so think back about all the, the terms you hear about refactoring workloads. Oh, well, that's not going to work in the cloud. We have to refactor it. They're not talking about apps that run on Java. They're talking about this stuff. I know people that still have jobs because no one else knows the arcane druidic language that makes AS400s work. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's funny that uh, um, one of the uh, uh, site, one of the organizations said, I think this was a ZDNet article we pulled this from, uh, was citing like the, trying to estimate how many AS400 workloads out there, and they do that by scraping job postings of companies desperately trying to find <laughs> the last AS400 engineers that haven't retired yet, or trying to draw them out of retirement, I guess, with uh, with some some hefty incentives there. Uh, so th th that's interesting as well. Is this an instance though of like? Google was contacted by one potential customer and they're like, I guess we'll just make this an offering because why not? <laughs> this is a million dollar contract and now they have to justify all the AS 400s <laughs> they had to buy. So they're going to figure out how to make this work. And the 13 people left in the world that's, still need this are probably going to be delighted. I'm sure there's an insurance company in Omaha somewhere that's running COBOL on AIX in a bunker. And they're like, 
finally we can move to the cloud and give up this life of larceny. <laughs> Well, we'll uh, uh, we'll have a story about IBM in a little bit. Uh, that uh, you know, uh, I think they'll be pr- uh, a little bit prepared uh, if everybody moves to GCP running uh, IBM AS four hundred workloads. Uh, next up here in other Google news, though, Google Cloud announced a partnership with Airtel, India's third largest telecom operator, which will offer G Suite to small and medium businesses as part of the telco service portfolio. Airtel serves over three hundred twenty five million people in India, uh, which last I checked is a lot, including five hundred thousand small and medium businesses. Microsoft announced a similar deal with India's largest telco, Reliance Geo, back in August. Third place telecom, third place public cloud. Big deal, Tom? No, not really. This is just kind of picking up some dollar bills that are scattered along the, the ground. This I, I don't see where this is going to benefit Google in the long run, other than saying they have some market penetration in India. Yeah, if if they had made, uh, you know, if this was a, an announcement with Reliance Geo, I mean, th- there is a, a, a large consumer base here. And yeah, I, I do think this is... Okay, you're going to use some productivity suite, so you're going to bundle in G Suite with you know whatever other services your ISP is basically offering you at this point. Uh, uh, if it had been with Reliance Geo and and they had a kind of inked that signature, um, uh, you know, kind of a kind of deal there, I think maybe a bigger deal in terms of gaining mind share um, in in that Indian market and, and using that to expand within the region. Um, you know, th- again. Not to say that uh, uh, Airtel is by any means a small operator. They are huge, gigantic, uh, basically by any metric that you want to throw at them. Uh, they just happen to be in a country with over a billion people in it. So uh, 325 million is third place. Um, you know, obviously, these are the deals that Google Cloud needs to make. Um, but yeah, everyone else is making these at the same time, too, unless you're Amazon, in which case you don't care because everyone's going to want to use you anyway. Yeah, that's true. I mean, this is no Jedi deal, but for Google, this is what you have to do to keep the lights on. Because let's face it, they're Google Cloud's on Death Watch, just like everything else is. All right. Next up, final piece of Google news, I believe, here for the show. Google announced it was updating the support offered through its Google OS automatic update program for education, now offering eight years of updates for devices launching in 2020, up from three years previously. This does come at a price. Google did raise the Chrome Education Update price, a one-time fee to unlock fleet management, 24-7 support, and other commercial features from $30 to $38. Is this going to get uh, trying to pad their education lead here, Tom, or are they feeling the need to maybe hit the gas as competition heats up? I, I, I ask that because raising the price indicates they can raise the price, which is interesting, but it seems like they're giving a lot for not a big price increase. But realistically speaking, was it something that they weren't already going to give anyway? I mean, look at the average age of Chromebooks that are out there now. I wonder if part of this was, hey, these things are lasting five and six years, because if you've ever worked in education, you know, the idea of a five year replacement cycle is fairly aggressive. (laughs) Um, This is basically just validating the fact that they'll keep working. Um, I'm wondering if this isn't maybe a push to get people to refresh the Chromebooks that are five years old so that they can get some new hardware out there for their partners. Um, you know, it's, it's, I, I don't really see why this is, you know, this is a, just basically trying to squeeze a little bit more blood out of that turnip. Um, education customers are always historically very reticent to part with their dollars. And so getting an extra $8 out of that Chromebook, and, and it's a one-time fee. It's not like it's $38 per year. You pay an extra 38 bucks with the Chromebook, which, okay, granted, is probably 10% of the price of the thing to start with. Um <laughs> And I mean, it will last you through the next two presidential administrations. Okay, sign me up. But I mean, I'd also don't see a big land rush of people trying to put iPads in either. 
So I don't necessarily know. I think Google's competing against themselves here. They're not competing against anybody else. Yeah, it does seem weird. I mean, we did see Apple make that push for education. I think it was almost two years ago now um, with that 9.7 inch iPad that uh, had started to integrate pen support. Um but, you know, for for all of the, you know, quote unquote, goodwill that that garnered or seemed to get positive press or something like that. I mean, you know, the 250 Chrome, you know, $250 Chromebook, again, that will that has good enough processing and you're doing everything in the cloud anyway. It's just running a web browser. Um, it's tough to beat that even with a big silicon lead um, that, you know, Apple seemingly has or, uh, you know, with Microsoft's Windows 10 strategy, I think for even though Chrome OS is just as update heavy as windows 10 is now for whatever reason i think the the um the perception is that it's um i don't even want to say more stable but it's less um it's more consistent i guess because it's just seemingly just a web browser yeah and when you consider that the the real win here has nothing to do with the operating system because i mean if you want to compare stability of chrome os to ios i mean that's you know that, that's not even a comparison. But when you look at the productivity applications, I mean, you can offer full G Suite. And now what's what's Apple going to offer? iWork? Nobody does anything in iWork. <laughs> well, and I don't now I, I speak out of ignorance here because I don't know if Apple does offer similar offerings like 24-7 support. I know they do have sophisticated fleet management uh, features and stuff like that, although a lot of that is proprietary. I'm pretty sure even if you wanted to, you could farm that out to another service. So that gets into a whole uh, uh, you know, a, a whole nother issue there, I guess, a, a larger education issue, which uh, we don't have time there. Fascinating uh, look at that, though, and interesting to see, you know, I think a lot of people are betting against Google because it's a Chromebook, like no one really wants it. It's not, you know, it's not that good, uh, but I guess uh, good enough as working for their education scheme. Speaking of things working, IBM, I remind you, a for-profit company, saw revenue grow for the first time in five quarters. The company reported revenue of $21.77 billion. That was up uh, on the year. Uh, A year ago, they had $21.76 billion in revenue, so it's up 0.04%. I guess they shook out the couch cushions. Red Hat revenue continued to grow up 24% in the year. Previous quarter, it was up 18%, so continuing to grow, which I think is really interesting, helping its cloud and cognitive software business unit grow 9% to $7.24 billion in revenue. IBM Systems revenue, you know, mainframes, was up 16% to $2.84 billion, with Z-Series revenue up 6 60%. Uh, they did uh, update uh, or release the new Z15, I think, a quarter ago. So people want that sweet mainframe action. All other business units were down on the year. Not a lot of people thought buying Red Hat was a bad move. I think, like, overall, I mean, I know a lot of people had issues with it. And we were, there were questions about whether IBM could execute with the strategy. But it seems to be helping IBM's bottom line pretty quickly here, Tom. Well, I mean, there was only one place to go up because I mean, when, so so look at look at the business units that grew. Um, you got the AI business unit, which I mean, that's like the stock market. That money doesn't exist because there's not going to be anything that comes out of AI. Um, and then mainframes. Okay, you guys are still collecting rent on that sunk cost thing. It's like owning a house for a hundred years and and renting it out to people. The the cost of that thing's paid off. So I mean. It, it hurts my heart to say this as a former IBMer, but I really don't see where they're going to go from here. I think this is going to be like, you know, Wang computers where they just kind of exist today and nobody knows about them because, I mean, yeah, Red Hat. Well, here's the thing. We don't talk about Red Hat, the IBM business. We still talk about it as if it's its own separate company. Nobody really understands that they're owned by the same, you know, group. So I get 
I don't know what IBM is going to be able to do to build their business because they're not going to be able to compete in cloud. Are they going to keep selling mainframes for the rest of their life? Are they going to develop, you know, Watson too? They're they're banking on uh, uh, retro enterprise tech coming back into vogue. I mean, but we're still talking about, you know, people running AS400 workloads. So clearly there there is a need for that big iron approach whether that's advice you know whether whether if i'm starting an, if i'm starting a fortune 500 company now you know like i do over the weekend um certainly i'm not going to be installing a z15 but virtual again virtually no one is in that situation of starting that up overnight um and so for a huge number of businesses you know if, if they can squeeze all the blood from that stone for a number of years you know maybe they can uh you know uh, maybe, like you said, Watson too. I, you know, who knows? Maybe, maybe Red Hat becomes their VMware. You know, I, I think a lot of people forget that. You know, kind of in a similar, it's it's not as direct ownership like with Red Hat and IBM, uh, but basically is is you know a, a Dell EMC property for all intents and you know for for financially in a lot of ways. So maybe that's enough. And you know, when you're when you're having double digit growth and it's that's growing uh, year over year over the course of you know a couple of years, if they can keep that up, keep that relatively consistent, you know, maybe that does become uh, their you know they become the Red Hat company, and we don't even think of maybe maybe that's the thing. Maybe it's IBM IBM fades into the background because we're only thinking about Red Hat. I don't think they have a problem with that as long as they're making money, right? Yeah. As long as they're making money. <laughs> Speaking of VMware, they announced uh, they plan to buy the network analytics startup Nyansa. Uh, the plan is to integrate Nyansa's Viance uh, analytics platform. I'm thinking of Vonage, which is confusing me. Uh, they're going to integrate their analytics platform into VMware SD-WAN by Velocod, meaning they get the tech field they presenter trifecta. VMware is getting some interesting pure play analytics here, but what most interests me is if, if they will expand in kind of this crowd crowdsource nature of Niantic's platform. Um, like I said, they've been a Tech Field Day presenter a couple of times now, and so I've, I've kind of gotten to get to know some of their offerings. They have a really interesting feature that lets you compare your network performance with others in similar configurations. It's kind of their approach um, to getting like the user experience metrics in a lot of ways. I know a lot of people like to do client-side probes and sensors and that kind of stuff. This is their approach to that kind of comparing similar configurations of their customers in an anonymized way, uh, giving you relative metrics to go along with just just, you know, uh, speeds and feeds. Is this larger data set part of a, a bigger trend here, uh, Tom? I'm thinking of what HPE got with InfoSight from Nimble Storage, where they're building up that huge data set uh, and kind of using that to um, uh, to build basically analytics for their customers about when things will fail or, or how to provision stuff and stuff like that. Will we be seeing that more often? And is that just as important as this analytics platform to VMware? Any input into a data analytics platform is important. And what you don't look at this, well, you could look at this as the, the nimble InfoSight thing, but uh, a more direct corollary would be uh, the Raza acquisition that became Aruba Net Insights. Okay. Um, this literally, I mean, Raza was a competitor to Nyansa when they launched years ago. By the way, they did launch at Field Day. Uh, fun story, when we signed them up, they didn't even have a company name yet. Uh, we, we figured it out uh, along the way. Uh, but, you know, first of all, congratulations to our friends over there, because, you know, uh, anytime you get acquired is always a good thing. Um, this, I, the fact that it's going to the Velocod business unit does tell me that they're going to continue to do end, end user 
support, like like the the crowdsourced analytics. Um, the the interesting thing I was actually seeing something that uh, Seamus McGillicuddy uh, posted earlier today. Uh, this is a great way to get telemetry from a user perspective. I mean, how many times have we done troubleshooting where it's like, well, it look it looks good on my end. Well, it isn't working over here, so obviously there's a problem in the middle. Um, the analytics engine from Neonsa, you know, the agents and everything that run on site can collect data and say, well, yeah, you you know, it looks good from your end because you're looking all the way up to the CPE. But in fact, the users are reporting horrible performance because it turns out like there's a bad connection somewhere or somebody, you know, triggered some kind of a lockdown QoS policy or something like that. Um, this is great for large customers. Neonsa's bread and butter was universities. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, big, big organizations with lots of user focused devices that are not things you own. So I can see this being a huge win for like customer analytics for things like branch offices and stuff like that. Uh, you know, it, the, the, uh, was it Verney, uh, V realize insight manager is the, the platform that this is really going to roll up into, uh, Verney kind of runs the data center side of things. This is the user's focus side of things. This is all about giving SUN analytics, uh, a little bit of a shot in the arm. Uh, I hope it pays off. Uh, honestly, this is the best exit you, that Neonsa can hope for. Not necessarily where I thought they were going to go, uh, <laughs> but Neonsa's feature set has always kind of been just that. It was a feature. It wasn't really a platform or a product. And so this this was good for them. I hope that VMware builds on this. Although, realistically speaking, I don't expect to see the, the term Neonsa or Voyance at all by this time next year. I think this is just going to get completely absorbed into the VMware Analytics engine and just it'll be there. Yeah, that was always the question. Um, a lot of times when I would see their presentations is, yeah, this th th that core capability is really interesting, but they needed to build out a whole lot of stuff to make it, you know, feasible as a standalone analytics platform. And yeah, integrating like this, I mean, if not, if nothing else, I'll be interested to see, um, you know, at the next uh, networking field day, we see VMware at to see if, uh, uh, you know, if we get some more details about how this will be integrated and what will uh, what we'll actually see um, from a uh, you know, from a network engineer perspective. So that will be very interesting. Uh, mm -hmm. And finally here, our last story of the day, a new report from White Source shows an increasing shift in open source licensing habits, which I thought was really interesting. Uh, it found that in 2019, 33% of software in their data set uses so-called copy left license, like the GPL derivatives, 2.0, 2.1, whatever, uh, that, uh, that allowed developers to use codes freely, but required providing the same license uh, with any newly developed versions or forks from that code. So if you take that code, you build something else, it also has to be licensed under GPL if you use that code. Meanwhile, 67% of software used permissive licenses like MIT's license or Apache 2.0, which allows users to use the code but not require derivatives to be so licensed as well. You just basically have to disclose, the, uh, you know, the code that you use that was open source. Uh, you can kind of uh, build your own uh, code if you want to that way. Compare that to 2012, when 59% of the software in the data set was under copyleft licenses and the rest under those permissive licenses. The top 10 open source projects are now managed by Facebook, Google and Microsoft. You may have heard of them. Is this just a reflection that open source is pervasive within the tech giants of our day, Tom? Yeah, crowdsourcing is a great way to get some features that people want and then make people pay for them. I mean, realistically speaking, this is exactly what's happening in the market. And let's be fair. I love open source. I ran Linux back in the day when you had to compile the damn thing. So I get it. But 
this is the problem that you're running into is look at the reduction in the number of projects that went from using copyleft, which is basically everything we can use is freely available to a model where we can build on this and we might even contribute some code back to you guys, but the really good stuff, no, you got to pay for that and we're not going to license it back to you. I mean, this is in a way it's kind of the, uh, the third leg away of the stool away from make it completely freely available or, build your support model around it. Um, I don't know how sustainable this is though, because with the situations you get into, I mean, I, I'm not an open source developer, so I won't be able to speak uh, with hundred percent you know, certainty on this. But if you know a company like Google or Amazon comes in and raids my project for a whole bunch of really cool ideas, and then immediately locks their contributions behind a license where I can't understand where they're coming from, yeah, that's going to piss me off. I mean, Amazon does it all the time with databases. They take an open source database, they build it into their service offering, and then they, you know, they add extensions to it, and then they charge for it. So, you know, I don't get the mind share of developers. I don't get the exposure of using my database. Uh, it, it just, it frustrates me. It's like if in a networking space, it's like taking an open protocol like OSPF or ISIS and building extensions on top of it that nobody else can use. Uh, oh, wait, I know what that is. That's Trill. And that <laughs> failed miserably. So yeah, stop doing that. I do have to wonder if this is a, a, a problem of uh, terminology or nuance or something like that. I feel like net neutrality is starting to get in a similar vein where it used to be a very, like, it used to be very simple. Like you meant open source, it meant like not Microsoft proprietary code. And there is now much more nuance into what the implications of open source are. And not even to say that, uh, that Facebook, Google, and Microsoft, and the other uh, big giant companies. You know, there are, there are tons of enterprise companies too. Uh, I know NetApp is like super active in their their open source uh, uh, projects and stuff like that. Not to say that they can't theoretically be good stewards. And if you look at the top contributors, I think Microsoft is like one of the top open source contributors as well. So they so they it isn't just because they're under these licenses doesn't mean they're automatically not contributing code to other projects and and stuff like that. But at the same time, I do think simply labeling something as open source really, you know, it makes you, gives you this nice hippie feel to a lot of uh, these projects when in actuality, like you said, they're, they're kind of building on the shoulders of, of those that have come before them and then not allowing people to build on top of them, which I do think has some long-term uh, knock-on effects. And uh, we, we will see the open source community. I don't know if you've heard this, Tom, um, can be a little, moody is the word I want to use, uh, persnickety particular, uh, if we will. So I think if this trend continues, uh, we may see a backlash against true open source versus more corporate, maybe open source, something like that. And I can see that distinction being drawn very quickly. I mean, because let's face it, even in the open source community, you've got advocates who are for open source. And then you look way over there in the corner and you have the GNU guys like Stallman who are like, yeah. there can never be any kind of tainted code in the kernel at all, or you are not a purist. And that visibility does not really reflect reality. Um, and, and and there's this news story we didn't get a chance to get to last week because I think we wanted to dig into a little bit more about yeah. the whole idea of putting, you know, ZFS in the kernel. And uh, one of those persnickety developers who just happens <laughs> to be named Linus was just like, not no, but hell no. And here's all the reasons why. And I'll tell you, you know, I agree with Linus completely. You don't want to put a ticking time bomb in the kernel. 
totally understand. Now, I don't necessarily know that he, you know, his opinions about whether or not ZFS is a totally valid file system or not matter. But you know, look at this corporate contribution problem. What's to say that the guy who follows Satya at Microsoft doesn't come in and go, hey, that open source stuff is garbage. I don't believe in that license. We want to take all of our code back. And if you've used it, we can charge you. Um, I don't see that happening because they don't have a legal leg to stand on. <laughs> but the fact that you don't know kind of gives you pause. But that doesn't stop some companies, Oracle. Um, so the the yeah I, I i the other question though that i have is or the other concern i have is you know i hope the pendulum doesn't swing the other way when it when it if this ever does become more fractured in terms of you know you have the open source purists shall we say like you said uh the 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 gnu guys like uh, uh stallman and, and such um i hope we don't have that far of a reaction because i while i i respect people that want to be that principled and they want to run uh, you know, Linux that has absolutely no proprietary code and stuff. I'm trying to remember what the name of it was. It Slack Linux that used to be like the pure open source. It was like the punk straight edge uh, Linux distribution. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or, no, Slackware Slack, or Arch. Not Slackware. Oh God, I can't think of it now. It used to have like a really punk logo, and now I can't think of it at all. <laughs> DistroWatch 28 Rich 2008 Rich is very disappointed. Um, the uh, but but I there has to be obviously a. I would think a practical approach to this that isn't just, okay, permissive licenses are fine across the board and stuff like that. So an interesting issue to watch. Um, GitHub has had some studies about this uh, going back to 2015, although now that they are owned by Microsoft, we will see if they are so forthcoming maybe uh, with the, with uh, that kind of licensing info. So nice to see this from White Source as well. All right, that just about does it for the Gestalt IT Rundown for this week. Tom, thank you so much for being here. Uh, where can people find more of your great stuff if they are so inclined? Well, you can always find me over at uh, Networking Nerd or networkingnerd.net, Networking Nerd on Twitter, of course, um, gestaltit.com. Uh, a lot of great writing coming out over there. Uh, make sure you check out all the other stuff we do, including the event we have going on, techfieldday.com this week. Um, it's about storage, so I won't be watching, but I hope you do. Yeah, storage field day going on right now. Tiger Technology just had, or Technologies had just had their debut presentation. Uh, so you might want to check that out. We will have full video of that available at techfieldday.com. Uh, pretty soon, uh, the wonderful Ben Gage is uh, our video editing uh, machine, and uh, he'll have that up ASAP, along with the rest of the presentations, as soon as they are done, or as soon as possible after they are done. So check that out. And you can find me, uh, my writing on gestaltit.com. Just want to let everyone know, if you're interested in uh, some of the links and stuff like that that we do here, we've had, uh, we now have expanded show notes also within uh, the blog post on Gestalt IT for the Gestalt IT rundown. So check that out. We have links, little write-ups, um, some hot tips takes, if you will. So check that out as well. If you are listening to this on our podcast feed, if you're interested in that, just search for Gestalt IT Rundown in your podcatcher of choice. You can find me on Twitter at Mr. Anthropology. That's MR Anthropology. Uh, but we will be back next Wednesday at 1230 p.m. Eastern Time on YouTube, running down at the IT News of the Week. Until then, for myself, for Tom Hollingsworth, for everyone here in the Gestalt IT family, here's wishing you and yours to have a super sparkly day.